0: You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only he can give. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of more or less in the middle of your Bibles. If you're unfamiliar, it's in the Old Testament, right after the book of Proverbs. So you got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you hit Song of Solomon, that crazy, crazy love poem, you've gone a little too far. So uh, hang a left, all right? We're in Ecclesiastes this morning and will be uh, for the next nine months or so. If you don't have the, a Bible with you, There's a, a, the text is in your order of worship. And if you don't own a Bible, there's one on the back table. There's a couple on the back table. I want that to be my, our gift to you. Please take it. This morning, Holy Cross, we are beginning, like I said, a new series, in another book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be spending from now until May walking through this book um, as, as much as we can, topic by topic, because we believe this book speaks to a particular narrative going on in our culture. We don't have time, and probably most of you would be bored to tears to go through all the, all the philosophical underpinnings of like, the last 80 years or so, but in short, we in the West have come to believe that many of our institutions, our convictions, our traditions, that, that they, have, they have let us down, that they can't deliver on their promises, and so we've abandoned them to a kind of individualism in which we as people... Um, seek to create meaning or purpose for ourselves by chasing our dreams, following our heart, which, as any Disney movie tells our children every time they see it, will always work out in the end, right? As long as you follow your heart, all your dreams will come true. But the problem is, for many of us, we have sought these things, and they're not delivering either. Our work, our money, our hobbies, our relationships, our advanced degrees, they're not giving us what we sought. They're not giving us what we thought they would. They're letting us down, and what do we do then? We're then left with the question of what are we going to do when we are left with meaninglessness? And the good news is we are not the first to wonder about this. The Bible actually talks about this, talks about it openly and honestly. And one of the most poignant places that it does so is through the teacher of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your place in the Scriptures or in your order of worship, as is our habit here at Holy Cross, we stand uh, in honor of God's Word. So let's do that now So, we read just the first two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Hear the Word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Believe it or not, this is even God's Word given for us to flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come with a lot of junk in this room. We've come with a lot of junk because that's who we are. We're people full of junk. That's all of us, every one of us, and no less the guy standing up here. And so we ask now that you would come and that you would be in the midst of all of that, more that you would you would answer your promises to speak with power when your word is preached. We claim that now and ask that you would open our hearts and speak to us. We are desperately in need of you. Preach your gospel to us. Because it is our only hope. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Growing up, I... I kind of was, um, one of my hobbies was I loved, I loved Greek mythology, Greek myth, right? And one of the more awful stories in Greek mythology is the story of Sisyphus. Some of you may be familiar with Sisyphus. Sisyphus was um, the king of the city that would become the city of Corinth. And Sisyphus was known as a liar. Um, He thought himself very clever. But the story goes that one day he thought himself clever enough to trick Zeus, who is the father of the gods, and that didn't work out so well with him. And so when he ended up um, dying in in, in Tartarus, which is their kind of afterworld, he was doomed to an eternity of pushing a giant rock up a hill. And a few inches from the top of that hill, every time he got it there, the rock would roll back down. And we're like, well, why didn't he just quit? He couldn't quit. That was the whole point. He had to keep pushing the rock up the hill. Now, the myth itself has had various interpretations throughout history, but all of them, to some extent, revolve around the idea of futility. Futility sisyphus always seems to represent futility in life whether that is uh kind of first century epicurean philosophers thinking on that or 20th century french ones by the name of albert camus all of us or every time this myth is interpreted it is always around the idea of futility something about futility about meaninglessness echoes in us whether we are ancient people or modern people but why and that is the question we are seeking to answer over the next few months. And so what I'd like to do this morning is take the first two verses of this of this uh, book by means of introduction this morning and kind of look at the book itself and then its central message. And there's an outline in your bulletin, as always, if that's helpful to you. Uh, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the preacher and his book, the preacher and his refrain, and then finally the preacher and his hope. You ready? All right, here we go. Let's look first at the preacher in his book. Let's be honest. Ecclesiastes isn't exactly like the first place you go for your private reading of Scripture, right? Like, like I, I need a book to, to kind of cheer me up. Where am I going to go? Oh, Ecclesiastes. That, that is probably true with most of us, unless, of course, you know what the book's about and you're, you're feeling some sense of identity with the speaker, in which case you may actually run to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, but if, if this isn't one that's super familiar to you, you're not alone. Because this book has had a really rough time of it throughout its history. Whether or not it's actually people arguing about whether or not it's God's word in the first place because of the fact that its message isn't exactly bright and cheery and hopeful, right? The overall outlook of the book is that it's a little uh, down. But one of the great things about the Bible, unlike other religious texts, is that it holds together a plurality of voices, a diversity of voices that can at times seem disparate, but all find their fulfillment in one central uh, story, one central person, in fact. Life is complex, and so is the Bible. Now take a look at that first verse there, and we're going to see a few things by way of introduction. First, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, that word that we translate preacher, some of your translations say teacher, others uh, something else. It's it's a Hebrew word. The word is Kohelet, and if you read commentaries, oftentimes they'll just call the dude that. Why? Because we're not really entirely certain how else to translate it. So preacher, teacher, that's fine. It, It all means something of that nature. But in Greek, when you translate that word, you get the word Ecclesiastes, which is where we get the name of the book. Okay, um, it is this person? And what we need to see about this preacher is that he is not named. Why is that important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. Because for for one, tradi- some tradition has said that this was King Solomon who wrote this book. King Solomon, who had been the third king of Israel, um, the, the son of David, the one who took over the throne after David was king. Uh, but, but quite frankly. Uh, I don't think that's very likely, nor does it actually matter. What does matter is that the, the speaker, the one who's the eye throughout this whole text, is a, is a king, a person of wealth and a person of power. And what he is writing is, a, is what is called a wisdom book, wisdom literature. We don't do that in our culture. We don't do wisdom literature. Probably the last time that we had something of that nature was like poor Richard's Almanac, right? Ben Franklin, uh, bird in the hand and all that stuff, right? None of us were like, What? Yeah, I know. We don't learn about that anymore. But anyway, that, that was, you know, and that's 300 years ago. So, yeah, we don't do that anymore in our culture. Um, but it's a book of wisdom literature. It was very standard in the, in the ancient world. And all that really matters for us at this point is that Ecclesiastes fits into the same kind of literature that you would see in the book of Proverbs. Perhaps a little bit of a different message, but the same kind of literature. Which, which only matters, that I want you to understand, it's not like Genesis. It's not like Kings. It's not a story. It's reflections of someone. Trying to pass on wisdom. This is this is this is a dude thinking about the world. But it's not just that. Okay, there's one more feature that's important. These aren't just any wrestlings. These aren't just any Joe Schmo wrestling with this it's not even just any king wrestling with this. This is inspired this is the word of God it's the Bible which means it's not just some dude thinking about the word or the world it's it's God inspiring someone actually speaking true things about the world that we need to grasp all right now let's look briefly at the content it does not take real long I think we hit it by about verse two where you start to get pretty depressed with this book I mean we're two verses in, you're probably already there, and this refrain about meaninglessness or vanity is something mentioned a ton. Now, some of you are probably wondering, how can the Bible say that everything is vain or everything is meaningless, when isn't the Bible, this, this book that has tons of hope, isn't this, in fact, one of those signs that the is just full of contradictions, right? The, the, isn't that the case? How can, how can the Bible actually say this when it's so pessimistic? That's a great question, and like I said before, it's one that's been asked throughout the history of this book. Um, but the key feature here is something that of this book is something that's not said in these first two verses. It's said down in the fourteenth verse. If you have a Bible, look down there real quick. Because as he's describing, as he's getting into how he's doing that, how he's looking at the world, he says, "I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all his vanity is striving after the wind." Okay, what what does that mean? All that is done under the sun. This is huge because this tells us what this book is. This book, what you have in this book is you have a guy who had a lot of time on his hands and what he did is he sought to observe the world. He just watched. He watched at things. He he rationally looked through and thought through all of the aspects of observable life and then he made judgments. In other words, he looks at work, he looks at pleasure. He's going to look at at power, at learning, at money, at wisdom, at folly, at relationships. He's even going to look at religion. And he's going to look at it from what we would probably call a secular perspective. And he would say, I'm going to look for meaning. And he says, i got nothing. I can't find it. There's this great equalizer at the end of everything. Even if your life is great, guess what? We're all going to die. Where's the meaning? When he looks at everything under the sun... He says, let's just look and see how life plays out. What he comes up with is a single refrain. Now let's look at that now. Look down at verse 2. The English Standard Version I read says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Okay? Let's define some things. What that word that the ESV translates, vanity, and some of your translations, the NIV says, meaningless, meaningless. Um, others will say futility or, or something of that nature. That comes from a word in the original that is very hard to translate. Uh, the closest thing we can come up with is it's like a breath. It's like your, the, your, your breath on a cold day, right? It's kind of vaporous. You can see it, but you can't grasp it. And it, whew, as soon as it comes out, it's gone. That's what he means by this. Something you can't grasp, something that's fleeting. Now, in saying this, There are a couple of options of, okay, what does he mean by that? There are a couple of options that we normally run to really quick. The first is what I'll call the Gnostic option. And what I mean by this is, this is in taking this option, what we are doing is we are saying that the book is arguing that there's no value in the material world. There's no value in the material world. And so many Christians take this position, right? The world doesn't matter. I'm kind of heading to the sweet by and by. Well, it doesn't really matter what goes on here. So when the preacher says that work is meaningless or money is meaningless, we then spiritualize it and say that what these means is that in this, in this world, work and money and all that is trivial. It's trivial. That it doesn't really matter. It's worthless. And this is the option primarily of religious folks. right? Most of us, if we were to think about it, probably struggle in this realm. This, this is religious folks. God matters. Maybe spiritual things matters. We don't, we don't know how to define that, but spiritual things but nothing else does. So that's one option, the Gnostic option. The other option is nihilism, okay? This is the option taken up by much of our culture, right? This is the thought that there's no such thing thing as objective meaning. There's no such thing as objective value. Nothing really matters. Anyone can see nothing really matters to me, right? Queen, help me out here. Bohemian rat. Go watch Wayne's World, okay? All right. Many of us here feel this way. We feel this way. There must not be anything like objective meaning. Why? Because we've chased the carrot. We've chased the carrot. We thought we would get what we would get, but we have given ourselves to something, whether that is success or pleasure or money, but it isn't delivering. And so we think to ourselves, what am I doing? What am I doing? I've given my days to this, and it's getting me nowhere. But listen real close. Neither of these options is what this book is about. This book does not leave us with, well, everything here is meaningless, so just look to God. Nor does it say, just, there's no such thing as meaning in the first place. To begin with the call that everything is meaningless assumes that you and I believe that it shouldn't be. That that there is something in us that longs for meaning, craves it. For some reason, and Ecclesiastes does not take the coward's way out by trying to claim that there isn't any meaning at all. It doesn't take the nihilistic route, but he also doesn't take the Gnostic route because over and over and over again he says in places that, look man, work is good, work, have fun with it, food is good, eat, drink, be happy, do the best you can with what you've got. He says it over and over and over again. meaninglessness as the preacher defines it is grappling with incongruities of the world things that he knows this should be what it is but but then it's not this seems to be the way things should be but but then it's not he he's trying to look at the world he's trying to look at world events through the lens of human reason and he's saying that all these things we look to for meaning at the end of the day they just don't deliver they do not deliver but at the same time, he's wrestling with this because of an understanding of God. If he took the nihilistic crowd, he, just, he wouldn't wrestle at all. He'd go, meaning, Meh, who needs it? There's no such thing. Everything's absurd, right? Camus, everything's absurd. Why, why worry about all this stuff? And instead, what he says is, no, no, no. God exists. God created. How can this be? And that's where the wrestlingness comes from. Because nihilism or Gnosticism, neither one lines up with the story of the Bible. But that story is one of meaninglessness, so let's turn to that now, okay? Because we need to see the world of meaninglessness. The Bible tells us that you and I are created for a world of meaning. We are created for meaning. God created the world, he called it good, he gave it value. Then he created us for relationship with him, put us into the world, and he said, very good. This is exactly the way it's supposed to be. He gave value to it, to us, We were made to find our meaning in him. But in time, you and I, humanity, believed a lie. And that lie was that we could be like him. We could create meaning independent of him. We could create meaning for ourselves. Sound familiar? No, we don't need God for that. And when we acted on that lie, when we betrayed God and broke relationship with him... We turned from him, and the effects of that betrayal were immediate and universal. And the passage that Pat read for us this morning from Romans 1 speaks to that, right? It speaks to that. First off, uh, what were those effects? First off, we came under guilt. We betrayed God, and when we betrayed God, humanity as a whole became guilty of that betrayal. We know this is what happens when you betray another person. Guilt happens, okay? It happens. But there's more than just guilt. Paul says in Romans one this he says, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became as fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images that resemble mortal man, etc. etc. Now here's what's going on. When Paul uses that word futile, it's the same word in the in Greek that they used to trans, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used to translate the word meaningless that we get right here in Ecclesiastes. And most scholars will tell you what Paul is, is he's reflecting on that very book when he's writing the the first chapter of Romans. Here's why that matters. Paul is describing that when we turn from God, not only were we guilty, but our hearts were darkened. Not only were we now under guilt, but we were now corrupted. And what Paul says is that we thought ourselves wise. We thought that we were wise. We thought we create meaning and, and chase after ourselves, but in, but instead, we were actually we actually became fools because we exchanged God for a lie. In other words, we were made to find our meaning in God, but now we thought we could find it apart from Him, that we could seek it everywhere else. You with me? You following? What Paul is describing and what the preacher is investigating is a broken world, because when you and I, when we turned from God, we became stuck. We became guilty for the betrayal we committed of God and stuck in our hopeless search for meaning in life in everything except the God we were made for. That is the world that we live in. That is the world that you and I experience. And you know this. But here's the thing. The problem isn't in the world. The problem is in us. The problem isn't that your work is pointless, or that your relationships are bad, or that you, you don't have enough money or have too much money. It, it, the problem is in us. It isn't that pleasure isn't good, it's that it can't be ultimate. It can't be ultimate. Your work's not bad, it just can't be ultimate. Ultimate. But as broken and sinful people, we continually take good things and make them ultimate things. We take sex, which is good in its proper context, and we make it ultimate. We take money and make it ultimate. Power, work, relationships. All good things. But we then take them and make them ultimate things. And that, friends, is a problem with our hearts. See, look, you and I think the problem's moral. We think our problem, if, 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 if there is one, is that it's moral. We just need to work a little harder, change a couple things in our lives, maybe reorient some things, get to church, and everything's going to be okay. And it won't. Because the preacher's going to say, look, man, even if you try religion, it ain't going to help. The problem isn't where you go on Sunday mornings. The problem's with that thing in your chest. The problem's with the core of who you are. We think that even if we believe that we're corrupt, and many of us don't. That's crazy Christian talk, so many of us don't believe that, and that's fine. But we believe that that if we are corrupt, it comes from our bad behavior. That's why we feel shame, but it doesn't. The Bible says that you and I sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. That's an important distinction. So let me back up. We we sin because we're sinners. We, We sin because there's something wrong in us. There's not something wrong with us because we sin. You can't change things by improvement. We do bad things because we have a bad heart. We seek meaning everywhere other than God because our hearts are fundamentally turned away from Him. But the good news of the Gospel is that God was not content with that. See, the story continues, both in the Bible as a whole and in Romans. If we were were to have Pat just keep reading, which would have taken the rest of the morning, but if we were to have kept reading, it's 16 chapters, this is long. What God says basically is that he sought to make things right. He didn't just leave us there and say, well, clean up your act. And that's where Jesus comes in. Do you want to know why your work can't deliver for you? You want to know why you can never seem to get enough money to satisfy, to give you the lifestyle that you think is what you want. You want to know why all your relationships leave you empty? You weren't made for them. What you are looking for, that restlessness in your soul, can only be found in a reconciled relationship with God. And that, friends, can only come through Jesus. Because in Jesus, God came to live that perfect life that was free of corruption, free of guilt. He lived it in our place. And then he died to bear the penalty for our guilt, for our betrayal, so that whoever places their faith in him can be reconciled with God. It's not about what you do. In a sense, it's about who you know. you're trusting and when we do that what we were meant to see as ultimate our relationship with god is restored so that all of those other things that are good can go back to being good and enjoyed as good just as they were made to be you with me all right i want to bring this home this morning in two ways if i can first by expecting complexity okay we hate complexity. Let's just be frank. We, we hate complexity. We constantly seek to reduce it. This is why the two normal options of life in regards to meaning are either Gnostic or Nihilist. Because we have to find a way to reduce the complexity to get control of it. Either everything's meaningless because there's no such thing as meaning, and then at least we know there's no such thing as meaning. Or, well, it's just somewhere else and, and we can wait for it and get there. If you have been pouring your life into success thinking, if I can only get that promotion or have that influence I'm looking for, then my life will be meaningful. And then you get it. And your life is just as empty. It doesn't doesn't mean that success is therefore bad or meaningless. That's a false dichotomy. Listen to me. Life is complex. Of course it is. God made life and God is complex. Think you can figure him out? (laughs) Good luck, man. I mean, he reveals himself and he's still infinite. is so, we can never wrap our arms around him. But God made the world good. Everything God created is good. But when we take those good things and make them ultimate things, they become a tool of our own brokenness. In other words, the problem isn't necessarily with your job or your marriage or your lack of money or having too much money. The problem is with you and with me. That's where the problem is. And the preacher in this in this text is looking out at the world. He's seeing us in all of our brokenness, trying to suck meaning out of everything we can find and seeing that those things can't come through, but at the same time saying that, that there's nothing wrong with them. He knows. He looks at work and he goes, that's good work. Why isn't it working? Food and drink and friends, they're good things. Why aren't they working? He's like, I, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Like, this is the one difference between truly biblical Christianity and other world systems. In truly biblical Christianity, we view the world as good. That God created it is good. But not what we were made to draw life and meaning from. You can't fall into the either or in this that we want to. The preacher of Ecclesiastes won't let you. Okay? And that leads us lastly... The last thing I want to talk about, which is reordering our loves. I said, Ecclesiastes was written long before Jesus showed up on the scene. I mean, the majority opinion is like several, several hundred years before Jesus showed up on the scene, right? Which means that you and I live in a privileged position of seeing how it was that God would fulfill his promise to restore us to himself. But that doesn't mean that the preacher wasn't looking for this. The very end of this book, the very end like the last few chapters, or the last few verses. He says this. The end of the matter. It's a pretty good sign that he's about to come to a conclusion, right? The end of the matter. All has been heard. Even better sign. He's about to come to a conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And what is he driving at? He's driving at this. So long as you and I keep looking to created things to sex, to money, to work, even relationships to fill us, to give us meaning, to bring us life, we will be left empty, meaningless. And ultimately, we will be left dead. And we will wake up one day, and if it hasn't happened yet, it probably will, and we will say, what am I doing with my life? The reason is not that those things are bad, or that we need to not care about those things and only care about God. The book won't let us do that. And there are, too many, there are just too many comments about enjoying life for that to be the case. Instead, we need to reorder our loves. You and I were made for God. We were made for Him. We were made for relationship with Him. But many of us, though, are so convinced that we know where our meaning will come from that we won't even open ourselves to relationship with Him. We have a place for him. Most of us have a great place for God. Usually it's in the role of genie who will give us what we want. Right? You know what I mean. We have God in our lives, but only insofar as he gives us the success we want or the money we want or the power. We say we love him, but really we love not being alone. And so we serve God so that he'll give us a relationship or a better marriage. We say we love God, but we really love feeling important, so we serve God thinking that He will give us this importance. Friends, you think you are serving God. You are not. You are serving the created thing, and you are seeking to use the Creator to get it. The question is this. Would you be willing to serve God even if He didn't give you those things? If you never got that promotion, if God called you to singleness instead of to marriage, or... Marriage instead of singleness. If he left you with the amount of money that's in your bank account right now for the rest of your days, paycheck to paycheck, making ends meet, would you be okay with that? As long as you had him. If you're not, friends, you aren't loving God at all. You're just using him. Just using him to get what you really want. You weren't made for those things. You and I were made for a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when we chase after those things, the Bible has a word for that. It calls it idolatry. It calls it false worship. And I know that we look at the Bible and we say every sin is the same. And every sin has the same penalty, but, man, idolatry is a bad one. And it's because our hearts are are factories for those little buggers. But those things cannot fill you. They cannot fill me. They cannot give us the meaning that we long for. But friends, if, if we seek first Christ, if we repent and return to Him, trust in Him to fill you, trust in Him to restore you, trust in Him to make things right, then all those things that are apart from Him, all those things that without Him are meaningless, will suddenly be filled with the meaning that they were intended to hold. Would you pray with me? Lord, in this place, there are a bunch of different kinds of people, but all with the same problem. We are broken. And we are stuck chasing our tails. Because somehow we are convinced that 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 thing we're chasing is going to fill us and feed us and make, make things right for us. But it won't. And we can't stop chasing it. We can't. It's like that's the only thing we see. And so we need you to come rescue us. Whether it's for the first time today. Like we need you to come today. If, if Lord, if there are those in this place who have never trusted in you, I pray that by your spirit you would impact them with power right now. To see the meaninglessness of a life apart from you. And to run to the cross of Christ so that all things might be restored to what they were meant to be. The rest of us, we made that decision probably a long time ago, but we, are, we struggle with this every day. Almost worse because we know the truth, and yet we can't, just, we can't just seem to give up those things. And you reveal new ones, and we're like, that one too? i got to give up that one too? i got to put you in the place of that too? But you are patient with us, you are kind with us, you are loving with us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work for our flourishing by rescuing us from our sin, delivering us. Help us to believe the gospel, whether it's for the first time or just the first time in the last five minutes, Lord. Let us believe it again. Repent and trust in Christ. And as we do so, Lord, fill those things in our lives with the meaning they were intended to have. Good, good things, just not ultimate. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.